Hello and welcome to another episode of the Dongfang Hour China Space News Roundup. This for the week of the 28th of June to the 4th of July, 2021. Before getting started, we would like to send a special shout out to our good friends at Spacewatch.Global and GoTikonauts, two excellent sources for space industry news. Also a kind reminder, in addition to the four stories we will cover today, we have an additional six or seven stories in our weekly newsletter. So if you have not signed up yet, go over to review and uh, check out our newsletter. This week, we're going to bring you updates on two of China's leading commercial launch companies, a summary of a launch that occurred just a couple of hours ago. But first, Jean is going to bring us some updates from China's Zhurong Mars rover. Ladies and gentlemen, we are honored to welcome you aboard the Dongfang Hour. Please make sure your seatbelt is securely fastened. Thank you. So, John, what's going on with Zhurong? Yes, this week we saw some welcome updates on China's Tianwen-1 Mars mission, from which we had last heard of on June the 11th, and that was with the famous Mars selfie that I'm sure you've all seen. And 16 days later, on June the 27th, so that's basically a couple of days ago, CNSA released, uh, well, a new batch of Martian snapshots and footage, which are fabulous as well and that are worth commenting in this episode. And probably the most impressive of them all is this extract of a footage from the descent phase. And basically the clip is filmed right after the capsule containing the Jurong rover and lander had completed the atmospheric entry, which uh, slowed it down from the initial orbital velocity of 4.8 meters kilometers per second to 460 meters per second. And at this point, the capsule has lost about 90% of its velocity, but it's still going at very high speeds, 460 meters per second. That's supersonic speeds were around Mach 2. And it cannot continue to just rely on atmospheric drag to slow down because well, with the Martian atmosphere and with the specific shape of a capsule, then there are stability problems. And so this is uh, why at this point um, that the supersonic parachutes are deployed. And this is what we can see um, on the video provided by CNSA. And we can also notice the disk gap band structure of the parachutes, similar to the one that was used by NASA on the Mars 2020 mission. And I get the feeling that this gap band is starting to become really a classic for supersonic parachutes. And so once the capsule has slowed down sufficiently to subsonic speeds, thanks to the parachute, we're around 100 meters per second, then the capsule releases the lander and the rover. And this is what we can see on the footage where we have a camera that's um, installed on the lander that's pointing upwards. And we can see uh, basically the now empty capsule and parachute that has that that no longer has a use. And ultimately, we have a camera that's also on the lander, lander that, but that's pointing downwards and that is filming really the last um, stages of the uh, final retropropulsive landing phase. And so honestly, the footage was absolutely amazing. If we do a quick comparison of what the Jurong rover uh, and lander provided compared to NASA's Mars missions, for example, I would put it on par maybe with um, the NASA's MSL mission. So the uh, Mars Science Laboratory mission, which put the Curiosity rover on Mars in 2012. And I say this because MSL also had a camera called Marty, the Mars Descent Imager, uh, which uh, filmed the descent also at a frame rate of four 
uh, frames per second. Now, I think it is also undeniable that what was provided by Jurong, while very good, is still significantly lower than what we had on the Mars 2020 mission, which put the Perseverance rover on the surface of, of Mars. And this is because really the Perseverance mission literally had an army of cameras providing very high quality, uh, probably 4K footage at cinematic frame rates. And so that was really amazing. And this is this difference is probably due to the fact that the payload of Jurong is uh, of the Jurong lander and rover is much smaller, and so probably didn't have the payload capacity to put extra um, what I could call cool but not essential payloads such as cameras. Um, also, probably because uh, NASA has multiple orbiters around Mars, so it's not as limited as China, which only has one orbiter for this um, data link between. Mars and the Earth. So that's the first video, very cool stuff. The other images we got was, uh, we had this one from the disposable Wi-Fi camera that Jurong had dropped some distance away uh, from the lander and took this very famous Mars selfie a couple of weeks ago. And this same camera took some uh, video footage with an impressive frame rate. Um, and we can see Jurong driving off and also performing a, a rotation. We also had an image that was coming from the hazard avoidance cameras where we can see the tracks that are left by Jurong, and we can see notably the little Jong character again that's left on the tracks that's left by the wheels. Um, we also see, so after Jurong drives away and puts some distance between itself and the lander around 200 meters-ish, uh, we also saw the navigation camera take this beautiful high-res panoramic image. And on this image that's really very high-res, we can distinguish the lander in the distance. We can also see the capsule and the parachute, which were discarded during the descent phase. And finally, the Jurong rover also sent back to the Earth a recording, which was taken when Jurong was driving off uh, basically the, the ramps of the lander and uh, before the rover then drives off to the ground. And so this is what you can hear on this um, recording. You can hear the contact between the wheels and the ramp and the ground. So now Jurong is entering, I think it's eighth week of, uh, on the surface of Mars. It's driven over 200 kilometers. It's now heading south um, and pursuing its exploration phase. That is, of course, 200 meters. As, 200 kilometers. Uh, yes. And big fan of the name Marty meters, for the, uh, the, what was it, the, the 2012 mission. That's uh, like Mardi Gras. Not bad. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's uh, pretty incredible stuff from Jurong. Um, so moving into our next piece of news this week, so we have um, an announcement by Landspace that they have completed the first phase of their small and medium rocket facility in Jiaxing. And so um, basically this is the company's second rocket manufacturing facility in the Yangtze River Delta uh, with a large factory in Huzhou that was built back in 2018. And for an excellent deep dive on the Huzhou factory, I would definitely recommend an article written in late 2019 by our friends over at Gotaikonauts. We'll put a link in the um, in the show notes, but basically they went to visit Huzhou and uh, they got to see the factory firsthand, which is pretty damn cool. So um, digressing. So Landspace is definitely building up quite a cluster, it seems, in this Yangtze River Delta region, which just to clarify, it, it encompasses uh, Shanghai and then the provinces of Zhejiang and, and Jiangsu and arguably Anhui, but I think most probably not. Um, so Landspace, they've hired around 100 people in Huzhou and uh, to a lesser extent Jiaxing since the beginning of 2019. And then they've hired an additional 10 or 15 people at their R&D facility in Shanghai. And that's based on some figures from different Chinese job posting websites. Um, I would point out that this um, the first phase facility in Jiaxing seems like a really quite large facility and uh, it's 40 acres and it is surrounded by an enormous amount of farmland. So there's a photo that they took from kind of far up and it, it's basically 
you could build a lot of things uh, in the vicinity of this factory, which I guess is uh, appropriate because as we also saw in the article, um, apparently this is part of the larger Jiaxing Aerospace Industrial Park. And so there's a little bit to unpack here as it relates to the industrial park. Um, so again, I think that the, the article, it refers to Land Space's factory, but then it also does refer to this larger plan. And uh, they note that it will have, quote, a cluster of upstream and downstream supporting industrial chain enterprises, and also states that within three years, uh, they will have, quote, a carrier rocket assembly and test facility cluster, uh, including a launch vehicle assembly plant, a semi-physical simulation laboratory, a comprehensive testing facility, a rocket fuel tank production line, and a data management center, end quote. And so... Uh, the facility also aims to improve the digi digitization of land space in terms of the design and, and I guess, um, development of their rockets, including using different simulations for different components of the rocket. And um, they did mention specifically in the article the Jutre 2 rocket, although it's also possible, if not likely, that it would also it would be in involved with the Jutre 1, given that it's a sort of small and medium uh, rocket factory. Um, so in short, it's a pretty big project uh, for in, in Jiaxing for, for land space. Um, and so taking a step back and looking at this in the context of land space's broader Yangtze River Delta activity. So this is about 1.5 hours from Hujo, and we'll put a map up here. We, we don't have an exact address that we are 100% sure of for land space's Jiaxing factory, or, but we did find a, a website that had a pretty good indication. So as we see, um, the Jiaxing factory is quite a lot closer to the sea, and it's, again, about one and a half hours to the east of, um, of Hujo. And, uh, Again, it's also a little bit closer to Shanghai, where land space does have a growing presence. Um, and so, yeah, I think overall, it, it's an interesting development uh, in terms of the, the location of these three different um, facilities for land space. And so just a final um, final note about the kind of the broader Yangtze River Delta region. So again, this article mentioned that the facility would contribute to the development of the broader Yangtze River Delta space economy. And I think it's going to be a very important area to watch over the coming years. So taking a step back, uh, broadly speaking, in China, you have three um, what we could call tier one megalopolises. And so those three being Jingjinji, so that is uh, Beijing and Tianjin and then Hebei province, which is up around the, you know, basically the area around the capital. Um, and then you have the, the great, uh, greater Bay area, so the Dawanchu, which is uh, Hong Kong and Macau and then some provinces, uh, some cities in, uh, in Guangdong province. Um, and then the third one is the Yangtze River Delta, so the Changsanjiao. And so each of these areas, they have a population of 100 million or more people. They have a handful of large and developed cities in each one of these megalopolises. Um, and, and each one, there's a rather large space sector. Uh, now, of the three, obviously, Jingjingji has the largest space sector by far because all of the SOEs primarily are, are headquartered in Beijing, or you know, 80, 85% of them. Um, but again, I, I think that uh, the Yangtze River Delta is developing quite a few space industry clusters that are worth keeping an eye on. So in addition to land spaces activities in Jiaxing and Huzhou, we've seen rocket groups set up shop in Huzhou also. Um, we've also seen space industry clusters in Nanjing, Nantong, Shanghai, Hangzhou, Ningbo, and Suzhou. And I would point out that all of those cities are more than eight or nine million people each, and probably all of them have a per capita income of at least... 12 or 15,000 US dollars. So quite a lot of different clusters. Um, and in these clusters, we've seen support from, from municipal governments and also SOEs and private VC as well. So definitely an interesting um, interesting development from land space, the second factory in uh, in the Yangtze River Delta region. So John, anything to add from your side? Yeah, I, I definitely think it's an interesting um, update from land space. And with this strengthening of their rocket manufacturing capabilities, 
uh, comes really the million dollar question of when they will launch uh, their ZQ2 rocket, the Jutra 2 rocket. And the Jutra 2 rocket is, as, as Blaine, you've, you've sort of hinted at it, it's a small to medium lift rocket on which Landspace has been working for uh, many years now. And they had an inaugural launch planned in 2021. This is as far as public information is concerned. And Landspace hasn't given any update on if this launch is actually on track, but they do give regular updates of what is going on in the company. And so uh, by looking at what they are doing, this does give us some hints on the progress that they have on the ZQ2. And uh, notably, just to give a few, in November 2020, we saw cryogenic plumbing systems being tested in extreme thermal and vibration conditions with some special attention that was paid back then to durability and sealing. And in early 2021, we saw Landspace complete a payload fairing separation test. And previously, we've also seen some great footage of various engine tests um, uh, that Landspace has been doing in preparation for Z the ZQ-2. And so um, to give a few examples, we saw multiple tests of the TQ-12 rocket engine, which is an 80-ton open-cycle liquid oxygen, liquid methane rocket engine. And notably, we saw a 2,000-second test run on January 2021. And this engine will power the first stage of uh, the Jutra-2 rocket in pairs of four, providing 268 tons of thrust at liftoff, according to Landspace. In March, we also saw a 4,000-second test of the TQ-11 engine, which is a much lighter 10-ton thrust engine, also liquid oxygen and liquid methane, with four nozzles. And these four nozzles can be gimbaled to a significant degree. We saw up to 25 degrees in one of the tests by Landspace. And these engines are an essential part of the Landspace ZQ-2 second stage, as we can see on this footage from June 2021, and where we have the TQ-11 used as vernier engines, providing three-axis control, and combined with an 80-ton TQ-12 engine in the middle, providing the essential part of the thrust of the second stage. And this looks quite similar to the RD-108 used on the Soyuz, also to the YF-24 engine series that's used on the second stage of the Long March 2, 3, and 4. And finally, we saw in February 2021, Landspace complete the assembly of four TQ-12 engines, so that 80-ton thrust engine. And this assembly basically composed the first stage of the ZQ-2. So these are first signs of an actual ZQ-2 taking shape, which is a good sign for an inaugural launch in a foreseeable future. So in a nutshell, a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes at Landspace on the ZQ-2, but still no definite date. And it's really a pity that borders with China are closed currently because Blaine and I were sort of invited to the inaugural launch of the ZQ-2. So that would be really a great opportunity to share something with our viewers and maybe an opportunity, maybe for a first live stream. So um, anyway, that's uh, that's all I have on Landspace. Do you have anything else to add, Blaine, or shall I move on to Deep Blue Aerospace? So there's two very small points. So the first one is that I've always assumed that all of those, you know, uh, engine tests that they do are, are at their Hujo facility, I guess. And I don't know for a fact, but that, that would be kind of interesting to, uh, to ask them about. And um, I don't remember what my second point was. So we can move on to Deep Blue Aerospace. If that's, uh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Excellent. All right. So Deep Blue Aerospace. <clears throat> also, some very good stuff happening with Landspace's fellow competitor. Both companies are planning reusable rockets of similar sizes, maybe. ZQ-2 is able to put four tons into low Earth orbit, and um, Deep Blue Aerospace's Nebula-2 is able to put 4.5 tons into low Earth orbit. And while Landspace has taken the approach of first making the ZQ-2 um, expendable, and then in the later stage making it reusable, Deep Blue Aerospace plans to make the, make the Nebula-2 reusable 
um, from day one. And that means also it has to work on vertical takeoff, vertical landing technology while it's also developing the rocket. And namely, this means building a demonstrator called the Nebula M, which is a teeny tiny single stage rocket that's barely 7.3 meters tall and that's able to perform some hops. And this is what enables to develop this VTVL technology. It's what SpaceX did with the Grasshopper back in the day. It's also what the China's Link Space uh, did with a demonstrator called the RLVT5 around two years ago in 2019. And it seems that Deep Blue Aerospace is really getting very close to first hop. And I say this because in late December 2020, they had completed successfully a wet dress rehearsal for the Nebula M. And last week, they announced that they had completed the preparations for a static fire test. And the static fire test is really the last test before actually performing these um, hops. And the static fire test would enable Deep Blue Aerospace to verify most parameters of the rocket in an environment that's close to the operational conditions. So if this is successful, Deep Blue Aerospace will then move on to the hops, which are at a meter level and then at a uh, hundred meter level hops. And that will be a significant step for the vertical takeoff, vertical landing technology, and also um, for the actual inaugural launch of the Nebula 2, which I remind our listeners will be reusable normally from day one. And it will be a giant leap for the Yangtze River Delta space economy, but I will get to that in just a second. I remembered my other point, which was with land space, if I'm not wrong, we heard as recently as maybe two months ago when an uh, interview with their CEO that they were planning on launching the ZQ2 within six months of that time. So um as of two months ago, that was what we were looking at. So as far two-ish months ago, we'll see. Um, but getting back to, to Deep Blue Aerospace, which is also known as DBA, which I've always liked because it's like, you know, airlines that are doing business as other airlines. And it, it always meant. Um, so this is an interesting development, again, in the context of the Yangtze River Delta space economy. So DBA, they moved their registered headquarters uh, from Beijing to Nantong in Jiangsu province in about uh, mid-2020. Um, and at that time, they had received some funding from a Nantong city uh, development fund type of thing. And it seems like at the moment, most of their staff is still in Beijing, but they are apparently expanding operations in Nantong, namely through building a rocket manufacturing facility, a satellite as uh, a rocket factory in the city. So um, of course, would not want to have just one in uh, in any given city. Um, so it's uh, just a couple of, of other points as it relates to DBA. So just a reminder that they are uh, one of the one or two most impressive uh, sort of second generation launch companies with second generation being an increasingly unreliable term. And so we better get our use out of it while we still can, because we're starting to see a lot of these second generation companies really going going to town. Um, having been founded at the very end of 2016 and having not raised any money until about three years ago, uh, DBA's had a pretty short but fast life as a company thus far. I would also point out that DBA is an example of a company that was founded by uh, what we could call a space industry veteran, which, uh, such that veterans can exist in, in a commercial space industry that is seven years old. Um, that is that DBA, they were founded by, by Huo Liang, who's the former CEO of OneSpace. So one of the, the original founders of one of the first generation who then went and founded his own company. Um, and so this is similar, I guess, to a, another second generation launch company, uh, Tianbing Aerospace, which was founded by the former CTO of, of Landspace, uh, Kang Yonglai. Um, so don't trust those CEOs, uh, CTOs, I guess, excuse me. They're, they're gonna, <laughs> they're the ones that are most likely to go start another competing company. Um, so just a last note about DBA and just tying this into the kind of broader, um, uh, the, the Yangtze River Delta theme. So one of the companies more recently entered shareholders, uh, is a, a sort of Ningbo, uh, Meishan bonded zone funds. So there's a, a bonded zone in Ningbo called the Meishan bonded zone, um, which itself is just across the water from the, the Xiangshan County, uh, commercial launch center that may or may not be built over the next few years. So 
probably a little bit speculative to assume that a fund in Ningbo showing up as a shareholder is indicative of plans to be launching from the spaceport. But ultimately, one thing that we can be sure of is that the Yangtze River Delta space sector is growing quite quickly. Uh, anything else, John, from your side on DBA? I'm all good. Excellent. So this morning we saw a Long March 2D successfully launch from Taiyuan, and it was just such an exciting and interesting launch that we had to rush and do some research and cover it today, because honestly, there was some phenomenal stuff. Um, so we saw two, uh, two, um, two GLIN-1 uh, Earth observation satellites that were launched by CGSTL, um, and then there was a, a Shui-Arsu satellite, which is built in collaboration between Beijing uh, Shui-Arsu Education Company, ComSat, and CGSTL, and then a couple more satellites. So just a little bit to unpack about this launch. Uh, the two GLIN satellites are the latest Earth observation satellites launched by CGSTL. They now have something like 27 satellites in their GLIN-1 constellation. One of the two satellites was launched uh, in partnership with the Inner Mongolia Autonomous Region, so one of the autonomous regions of China, um, for the purposes of things like agriculture and crop monitoring, natural resource surveys, ecological and environmental monitoring, and so on. Uh, the satellite is apparently the world's largest submeter optical remote sensing satellite. That, according to the press release on the CGSTL official WeChat account, um, and it is capable of collecting more than 2 million square kilometers of HD images per day. So quite a large satellite, apparently. Um, and I would point out that the partnership with Inner Mongolia is yet another interesting example of CGSTL partnering with a city or province to develop a satellite or to otherwise help that city or province get data from CGSTL's constellation and then allowing that to help them expand their constellation. And my feeling, and I, I don't know with 100% certainty, is that most of these cities that partner with them would probably get access to the data from all of their satellites and that this particular satellite would not be limited to Inner Mongolia, as it were. Um, so again, interesting example of um, of CGSTL building out their constellation with a partner that is a, a province. Um, and so now the, the second part of this launch, which was um, even more interesting. So you have the, the Shui satellite. Uh, and so digging into the Shui company a little bit, so it's apparently an education company that offers different online courses, including quite a few that are related to the sort of space and aerospace industry. And so uh, their satellite program was originally announced back in April of this year. And when going to their website, we can see they have several different levels of space classes from, you know, very young kids space classes. So it's, uh, is it Song Meng Xiang Shang Tai Kong, like uh, to sort of deliver dreaming to space uh, up to courses about satellite design, this sort of thing. Um, and so the connection with ComSat here, which again, this satellite was developed by ComSat, Shui and CGSTO. Um, the connection with ComSat, not particularly surprising, given that ComSat got its start doing different uh, sort of space education type of, of products. Um, and um, it's interesting to see this three-way collaboration between ComSat, CGSTL, and, and Shreyarsa. And, and just one last point, and then I will hand it over to Sean to, to wrap things up. Um, this is, I think, another example of a, a company that actually, it's a commercial company that's buying a satellite and plans to make money on that satellite in a commercial way, sort of like Billy Billy with their video satellite. If Shreyarsa has lots of students online and they want to take some courses that involve you know, using some satellite in some way, th this could be you know, real kind of commercialization of space, if we can call it that. So um, anything else, uh, Jean, from your side on today's launch? Uh, otherwise, you have uh, some updates from last week. I think there was also an optical payload from Intain Optics um, mm. on one of the Jilin-1 satellites. And so uh, Intain Optics is one of those, probably one of the most promising uh, laser satellite-to-ground communication companies. I think it's their second laser payload they had 
uh, on a satellite. They had done the same thing last year on a Space-T satellite at the end of the year, I think. But I probably would have to do more digging and get my facts straight before uh, talking uh, about this topic on the uh, on this episode. So I'll leave it at that. I don't have anything more to add on this launch. I just want to add a last uh, point before wrapping up this episode, which is for the uh, listeners that had stayed onto the end of the video last time, I just want to reveal the odd man out of the new Dongfang Hour banner, which was, of course, the third image on the first line, which was an illustration of Starlink satellites. All the other images were linked to Chinese space. And so I also want to congratulate um, Duya Taxes, Terry Ja, Tennis Guy, Nicholas Xu, uh, all these uh, viewers for finding the correct answer and for posting them in the comments. And also special mention for Duya Taxes, who actually went way beyond that and managed to name literally all of the images that were present on this banner. So uh, kudos to you, um, Duya Taxes. You definitely know your Chinese space stuff. Uh, and on that note, that's all I have for this week. Um, so passing it on uh, to Blaine for some final conclusions, if you have any. Definitely check out the deep dive episodes that we have started to post on the YouTube channel. Jean had a very interesting discussion on his deep dive into the cameras being used on the Chinese space station. So um, check it out. What was the other topic that you had covered on that one? I apologize. I'm Relay satellites. Relay well. satellites, because how would you get the images from the space station back down? Absolutely. I guess you'd have to use uh, the, uh, is it Tianyan? Tianyan, Tianyan, yeah? Tianyan, uh, indeed. Okay, great. Well, um, this has been another episode of the Dongfang Hour China Space News Roundup. This for the week of the 28th of June to the 4th of July. Happy 4th of July. Happy uh, happy Hong Kong SAR Establishment Day, I suppose. And a happy 100th anniversary to the party of uh, to the Communist Party. So uh, what a week, indeed. I hope there's barbecues going on. And uh, it's okay. I think that I think we're good. Yeah. Um, so see you next week. And uh, thank you yeah. for watching. Thank you. See you next week. Bye.